Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast show. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had David Barnett on the on my show. We talked about buying and selling businesses and the red flags and the mistakes and errors and stupid things that people make when they're looking to buy or looking to sell. And uh, it was a really terrific show. And we had another topic we wanted to cover, but we didn't quite get to it. And that was about um, investors investing local. And so I, we talked about him coming back on the show. And so here we have it. And if you haven't listened to that one, let me introduce you to David real quick and just give you a, a, an idea of, of why, you know, he has such a great insight into this. So David is a best-selling author. He's a sought-after speaker. He's an advisor, former business broker. And so that's a lot of what he, his knowledge about buying and selling that we shared in the last uh, session is. And uh, he, you know, really uh, also has this book that's called Invest Local and has a very specific strategy that is um, a way to concentrate your investment strategy while having an element of it that will grow, but also to um, protect it and sustain it. And, you know, part of what I talk about when I talk about my angel investor book, you know, is a diversification strategy. And this right here, what he's going to talk about here in a few minutes, I think is um, it has elements, it's, it's really another type of an asset class than I normally talk about when I talk about wealth preservation or wealth growth. So it's like a, it's almost a fourth class. So you've, uh, you know, I talk, I'm, my goal of Compassionate Capitalists in the movement is to get more people to invest in entrepreneurs, which most people think of as really a high risk area because you think of angel investing and oftentimes you don't really know what's going on with these companies and how they're gonna to get to a point of being an exit, which is kind of what was in the buying and selling part of, of the last podcast. Uh, but there's also ways to approach it, and I talk about it in my book, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, where you can um, you know, revolve your money and get make money on every time that it revolves. And there's, and in his scenario, which he'll describe, there's also another asset class that's, that's very conservative and long-term versus even um, real estate or stocks. So um, I want to, uh, again, um, remind everybody that it, on this particular show, you'll see in the show notes, there's a link there for the YouTube of, of this. Uh, if you're out there following me on social media or, or David on social media, you'll have an option to watch this on YouTube or else to, to listen to it as the podcast. So uh, with that basic setup for David, I'm going to welcome him to the show. Hello, David. Glad to have you on again. Hey, Karen. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Okay. So last time we talked about your journey to becoming an expert in buying and selling. So let's first talk about how, so how did you come up with this idea of invest local and how did you learn about it and, sure. and why is it something that you're such a, uh, you're so such a fan of? Okay. So last time I was on the show, I, I talked about my backstory and, and part of that story, I mentioned how I was a, a commercial finance broker, a loan broker for small business. And it was in that time that I was doing these deals. I was representing leasing companies and banks and, you know, helping people to obtain loans by creating the right presentation and whatnot. And I was handling a lot of paperwork. So there was one case in particular where I did a, a lease on a, a big truck for a company. And it was a multi-billion dollar leasing company based in Toronto. And they sent me a limited power of attorney to act on behalf of their company. So here I was 
this, this, you know, small city guy on the East coast of Canada, getting a document, giving me a power of attorney to act on behalf of this multi-billion dollar corporation in a very limited respect, because my only authority on their behalf was to register a title down in DMV. So, so I took this limited power of attorney with all the other paperwork and went down to DMV and I had to, uh, where I live, the, the way it's represented on the titles when you have a, a leased vehicle is it says the name of the leasing company and it says operator and the name of the person who's, who's operating the vehicle. So I'm, I'm standing in line, I get up to the front, the paperwork is all processed and then I have to send this, uh, I have to email a copy of it up to them right away so they'll release the money and then I send the original documents in the mail. So as I'm reading this stuff, I'm realizing that I'm handling all of these different pieces of contracts and paperwork and I'm, I'm learning what the banks and leasing companies do to manage their risk, which is to have collateral backstopping everything that they lend on, basically. And so we often are taught as investors that the higher the rate of return, the greater the risks. And what I learned when I was a finance broker is that that is not really true. In fact, there are plenty of people out there getting very high rates of return and they're not taking much risk at all. And so if you have ever been or worked with a small business, for example, some kind of contractor and they needed a, a tool, you know, jackhammer, welding equipment, et cetera, you know, sometimes those guys will turn to leasing contracts because it's easier to get funding for that piece of equipment than to get a traditional bank loan, especially for the smaller, smaller um, projects, right? And so sometimes these guys are even putting down payments down and then they don't even own the equipment. The leasing company owns it until they make the last payment. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if there's a piece, if there's a loan out there and there's a piece of collateral and you put a lien on it and the person doesn't pay the loan, you might have to go to court in some jurisdictions to actually get the ability to go and seize that piece of collateral. But if your name is on the title, you own it. So if they don't make the payments, you just go pick it up. Right. So it, so it shortcuts the repossession of collateral. And so what I was learning is that these guys who do these lease deals and some of these loans, um, they're charging small business people in the teens or even low twenties of percentage rate of return for themselves. And they actually don't take a great deal of risk. If, if they're not paid, they go and get the piece of equipment and then they either sell it or they find some other entrepreneur who's going to continue, carry on the payments. And, they're able to avoid the risk while getting that great rate of return. And so one day I had someone call on me, it was a small restaurant owner, and they were looking to replace their gas grill and, and oven. And they were looking for like $3,500 and I, a piece of equipment worth 3,500 bucks. And I knew that none of my regular funding sources were going to sure. be interested in a deal that small. Right. That's when the light went off and I said, oh my God, I could do this deal with my own money. Right. And I could just pretend that I found, you know, a company willing to finance it and it will be my company. And so I basically, you know, plagiarized and copied documentation that I had been handling for the banks. And I put together my own document package and I did the deal and I collected money over the next couple of years. Every month I got a payment from this person. until I was completely paid off and, and it gave me the courage and the confidence to look for ways to do it again. And then I started to do it over and over again. And, and here's the interesting thing. I never advertised looking for these deals. I would just tell people that I knew that these are things that I was doing. And then I would get a phone call from somebody who was a friend of a friend 
who said, hey, I heard you do these kinds of deals. And so what I learned in a, in, you know, through my experience is that when you're doing these kinds of deals locally and you're leaning on a social network of real relationships between people, there, there's an amazing thing that happens is that even if somebody is going to get into trouble and they can't make the payment, you're probably the last person they want to skip a payment with because they were introduced to you through someone they know, they're thinking about their reputation. And if, if a business is failing and someone's gonna default on a loan, it's much easier to default on big bank than it is to default on friend of a friend. Sure. Right. And, and then there's a few other things that I tweaked along the way. So f- for example, I, I did a couple of deals with people and they would keep coming back to me, not necessarily because I was offering them a cheaper rate than a lot of these people would qualify to borrow at the bank anyway. But the reason that they wanted to do business with me is because I wasn't reporting to credit bureaus. So I wasn't creating hits on their credit profile. I wasn't causing their score to go down. Um, and um, I wasn't necessarily requiring them to personally guarantee any deficit in the case of a default. So a bank, for example, might lend you money for equipment in a business, and they might say that you're going to have to personally guarantee this note. And now all of a sudden, your name is associated with that loan. What I do instead is I get the owner of the business to personally guarantee the return of collateral. So instead of them guaranteeing what they owe me, they're guaranteeing that if anything should go wrong and they can't make the payments, that they're personally liable to give me whatever it is that I helped them buy. And so that removes a burden from me of having to go and and repossess stuff. And because I'm connected with a relationship, I'm often talking to these people. And there there was one case where somebody was in a, a little bit of a seasonal business they were in a cash flow crunch and they contacted me and they said, look, we're having a problem with, with our cash flow. You know, I don't want to miss a payment. Is there any way we can work something out? And I gave them a four month payment holiday. I just said, look, I'm going to extend the note by four months and we're just going to skip the next four payments. You can deal with your cash flow crisis in the spring. You can pick it up again. Worked like a charm, right? Because from my point of view, nothing protects me more than a business that's making money because yeah. if they're making money, I'm going to be able to collect on that note. Very interesting. Very interesting. Cause uh, so when I was writing inside secrets to angel investing, my editor said, oh, you need to get, create a story that people can relate to. So there was this, um, I call him Joe in my book and he was an actual investor in our angel investor group. And um, I always believe that a good way to get started for angel investors that are like a brand new to it, that are uncomfortable with the idea of actually stroking a check that might be tied up for, five, six, seven, who knows how long it might be tied up um, in, that you kind of get comfort, get your sea legs, so to speak, by doing loans, bridge loans, or um, some kind of, uh, you know, bridge uh, financing on um, a transaction that the company needs. There's this, this program called revenue cycle management or revenue financing, royalty financing, sometimes it's called, mm-hmm. and where you're not really taking equity, you're getting a return on uh, over and beyond out of cash flow till X amount of money is paid back. And it's usually pretty substantial. So yeah, anyway. it's like some of the royalty trusts that are floating out there yeah. in, the, in the public, uh, right. publicly traded equities. Yeah. Right. So, um, so this, got, this particular investor got started that way. I told them, you know, before you go to get comfortable with the process, you know, I want people to, cause it's, it's, 
the first thing I learned when I started getting involved in angel investing is that it's, it's very different when somebody's stroking something out of their own checking account versus somebody that is a fund manager and it's other people's <laughs> money, right? And so your YM, your money versus OPM, other people's money. And so um, he did a, a bridge finance that got him warrants plus, plus interest while this closing on this other this other big big VC amount was expected to happen and these guys need to make payroll and things like that and they were going concerned and he validated all that and he did that and then I saw another one where somebody had gotten their first big order from um, it was a consumer products and they got their first big order and they were going to go try to raise capital on equity to fill that order and we're doing it that way and it's just a long time to do it on equity where you know you could look at the, the financials of the whoever's buying the product and there's, you know, insurance, there's all kinds of things that you can protect your loan when you're doing those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was a way. And so, you know, in my book, I, I think it's chapter six, I have a, a whole section on that. Um, when is an angel investor really a bank? And it kind of describes bank, but it describes all the different types of investor debt that's available to business and why loan money rather than purchase stock, right? Because that's yeah. a really good way. If you have, I compare it to real estate is when you're doing um, a, like a bridge loan would almost be like when you're buying a rehab and you're doing a convert, you're converting it. So you're in and out of it pretty quick. And then the royalty financing type of, of products where there's an ongoing annuity is more like buying real estate that has a, rental income that comes in commercial rental income or something that comes in all you know over a period of time and so you know trying to get folks to understand how it compares and so when you you know described to me this program was like right on i i had met i remember a couple one of my angel investor meetings and a couple of times i'll meet people that exactly like what you described what you're doing where that was what they were doing that was how they had accumulated their nest egg and mm -hmm. um, in taking this money, getting money back on it, you know, and basically almost like, you know, there's a whole lot of adage of when you gamble, letting it ride on the house, because once you start, you got your principal back and now your interest money that you made on it is now what you're loaning out, you know, you're doing, you know, and you just keep doing that. It becomes an, the word of mouth of it is, um, is interesting because I do, I continue to try to find those kind of people within my own community because you do have sort of these short-term things or these little bumps that you just need before they're at a point where they can qualify for regular financing. We have a, a debt product that um, is like that, but it's bigger money. So I'm guessing it must be private people that are providing the interest because they don't require a, a, a credit check. They have the entrepreneur pull their own credit so it doesn't hit theirs. And then they use that and they do the personal guarantee like what you described you know, and it is, I think one of the things you said the other day when we talked about, you can describe this, um, you know, people sometimes get heartburn over interest rates. And what you're doing with an investor, the main thing they want is to have something that's better than what they could get in the stock market, right? And so, well, yeah, you know, yeah. And invest and entrepreneurs are willing to pay that because of the revenue that they're going to make on that. So address that point. Yeah, sure. So, so in the book, um, I talk about the difference between whole, wholesale and retail investing. So when you um, go to the bank or mutual fund company, you say, I want to invest some money. They're going to show you mutual funds and CDs and all these kinds of things. And they're literally called retail investments. And the, the whole idea is that you put your money in and then you walk away. You don't have to do a single thing, right? 
And so you put your money into that CD and they're going to pay you one or 2% or if you're lucky, you know, whatever it is that they're going to pay you. But then what does the bank do with that money? They turn around, they lend it to someone for a car loan and they charge them nine and a half percent, right? But the bank has to collect the payments. They got to send them statements. They got to chase them if they don't pay. So the bank is doing work. So I liken it to the difference between going to a local shop versus going to Costco. One's a wholesale experience. You got to drive further out. You got to go to the industrial park or by the highway. It takes more effort. You got to buy larger quantities, et cetera, but you save money. The, the same is true in the world of investing. If you're willing to do part of the work, then you get yourself into the wholesale level. So if you have a, um, a small business owner who has good credit and they could go to the bank and they could borrow money for a delivery van for their business and the bank is telling them that they're going to offer the money at 8% interest or something. And the best I can do as a retail investor is to invest my money at one or 2%. Well, why wouldn't I make that loan and earn 400% greater return than what I can get at the bank? Or maybe I should do it for him at 6%. And now he's saving 25% off his interest costs and I'm still earning 300% more than I would at the bank. And so it, it's, it's a way for people to get a higher rate of return. And like I said, it's not necessarily taking on more risk because you're lending to someone who's actually bankable anyway, and you can take the vehicle as a collateral. So you have a plan B. And when I was on your show there a few weeks ago, one of the things that you had mentioned is about investors exit plan when they invest in a small business. Mm -hmm. The same problem occurs with any kind of investment in a business is how do I get out of this? And I have a, a lot of friends who have been involved in hard money lending for real estate. And what is typical in that market is people will make a 12 month interest only loan under the idea that the real estate or rehabber, the investor is going to be able to flip the property or renovate the property and then resell it or refinance it. Well, when your exit plan is based upon somebody qualifying for credit in the future, we have no idea what the future holds, right? And so that may or may not happen. And I know of investors who've been stuck with some of these things for a couple of years, even though they wanted out, the person they lent the money to couldn't get out of it because circumstances had changed. Well, under the types of deals that I describe in Invest Local, what I'm looking for is a business that can use the capital to either grow sales or reduce costs. This makes them more profitable and the notes are fully amortizing. So unless there's a severe change in what's going on in their business, then you, the exit is simply waiting out the end of the note. So um, just a uh, public service announcement, so to speak, as you're listening to this, folks, or watching this, please, uh, you can get more information, get access to the book, get access to more information from David and this topic at investlocalbook.com. Very simple, investlocalbook.com. And also through uh, davidcbarnett.com. David C. Barnett and Barnett's with two Ts. So, okay, so now a lot of this sort of sounds um, like peer-to-peer -peer lending, which is sort of, you know, you're in the relationship part of it on doing this as a, a direct investor in that. How does this compare to the peer-to-peer -peer lending that's out there that you might see from, um, you might see from, uh, let's see, so SoFi is one. There yeah, there's a few of them out there. Cabbage. Right? You know, some of them are, are for person, you know, personal stuff, but there are some that are business. I know Prosper, I think Prosper.com used to do business and there was a, a whole 
I, there was a whole kind of before all of that stuff started with the internet, there was a, like a whole community where um, individuals would get trained on how to provide these loans and they would, they would post it to a portal that had investors that would sort of not really bid on loans, but they would, would try to, you know, based on what kind of business was asking for the loan and the individual characteristics of that business, they would, you know, op, say, raise your hand and say, I want to be in on that. So talk a little bit about that compared to this relationship side of what you're talking about. Sure. I, I think there's a big difference, um, you know, with those online platforms and, and there's one that I play with. In fact, I've got an automatic deduction out of my checking account where I put a couple hundred dollars every month into one of those because I think it's kind of fun. And I go look at the different ones. But, but you know, what's interesting is that in each deal, I probably only put 25 or 50 bucks, right? So, so I, I, I think that it's, number one, the relationship isn't there between myself and the, and the borrower. It's more difficult to get the degree of due diligence I would normally do in my own deals through these platforms because they kind of, it's kind of fill in the box kind of formulaic presentation. Um, but if somebody's willing to pay 17.9% to borrow money and it's an industry that I'm not frankly afraid of, um, will I put $25 into the deal? Sure. I will. Right. Oh yeah. That's easy. <laughs> but, 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 but it's, it's, it's far more speculative. The amounts are far lower. And if I take a bunch of losses, it won't, it's not going to kill me. Right. The, the difference with the local deals that I do is that they they're in the thousands of dollars. So they're, they're bigger, but they're still small by most people's standards. And in fact, in the book, one of the suggestions I make is the first couple of times somebody does one of these things is they find out what is the limit for your local small claims court and only do deals under that cap. So if you can sue someone for 50 bucks by appearing in court yourself anywhere up to five grand, then that's the limit you set for yourself in the beginning. So that if for whatever reason you do have to go seek a legal solution, it's not going to break the bank to go and find that solution. So they're bigger deals. And here's the other big key component. And this is something I talk about in the book as well. You can apply leverage. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I did a deal for, uh, and it was one of the few personal deals I've done. It was for a lady who just got divorced. And as a result of the divorce, there was all kinds of bad stuff going on financially. And her and her ex went through bankruptcy. So big black mark on her credit score. She's got a daughter. She's looking for a place to live. Her choice is that she can live in an apartment or she can find a little bit of an older mobile home. And for this, almost the same amount of money in payments, she can live in the mobile home, build a little bit of equity for herself as she pays that thing off. So she found, she got connected with me. I made a deal with her to, to, so she could buy the mobile home. I made her a loan. I had the lawyer who handled the transaction put security on it for me. So there was a lien on it. And over the course of four and a half years, she paid me off. Her lot rent and her payment to me was less than the rent on an apartment. So, so the, the golden rule I have is that the, the money invested has to either reduce expenses or increase income in a business. And this was a household, but it achieved that cost reduction. She had more money in her pocket at the end of the day because of the loan I made. Okay. And once I had that note in my hand, that note became my asset. So I was charging her, I think it was 18.9% or something like that interest on that note. I've got lots of friends who think that this stuff is fun and they're always asking me, Hey Dave, if you ever have an opportunity for me, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to do a deal with you. Well, guess what? I took that note and I offered that note as a security on another note. So I borrowed money from a buddy but I only paid him 9%. So 
So this is exactly what, bank, what the bank did in the illustration I gave earlier about the car loan. Banks borrowing from you at 2%, lending money out at 9%. I was lending money at 19% and borrowing part of it at 9%. So the net effect for me is that my yield on the portion of capital I put out was boosted. So I was able to leverage my rate of return because I held the note and I controlled the note and I offered the note as security. So if for whatever reason I didn't pay my investor, he could have come and taken my note and he could have collected from the woman himself. If the woman defaulted on with me, I could have seized her home. If in turn I defaulted on my investor, he could have taken the note, he could have taken the home, right? So it's, it's this chain of collateral that is protecting every person in the chain, but doing the, the bigger deals and actually controlling the components like the, the physical note gives you so many more opportunities as, as an investor. And even if you're not looking to leverage to boost your own rate of return, you can also um, use these techniques to reduce risk. So there was another deal that I did and it was relatively small, but I thought it was a little bit risky. So I just called one of my buddies and I said, do you want to go in on it with me? So I did the deal and then I sold him half the note for the same amount of money that I paid that I invested. And so he got the same rate of return that I did, but I got half my money out a couple of days after I did the deal. So now you started this by, you know, kind of word of mouth of your friends and things like that. Right. So yep. how does, how, so how, so you, and you kind of sort of, accidentally got involved in it with the one 3,500 deal if mm-hmm. you had that money. So, you know, is there a, a pattern or something or a, a process or how would on, on the investor side, how does an investor that wants to do this kind of stuff kind of, what should they expect? They should have a, a cash on hand of a certain amount and then just start talking to their buddies that they're looking for these kind of deals or go to accountants or like, and no. how does an entrepreneur kind of connect up through you, that? Cause you, they normally would go to the bank, but they don't know who else to go to after that. Yeah. You just, you just leverage your personal network. So for me, um, you know, for a long time, I was a member of my local Kiwanis club, which is filled with accountants, lawyers, physicians, business owners, you know, insurance guys, you know, and they, they all know business people, right? So you just, you're working on a community project one day, you're helping to build a playground for the community center and you're mentioning to people, yeah, I'm, I'm doing these private loans for entrepreneurs. And then all of a sudden your phone rings and, and you want the personal connection. You don't want to be going online advertising that you're lending money or anything like that, right? Because you're, you're going to get all kinds of problems come out of the woodwork for you. You want to have a real personal connection through somebody to some of these people. And, you know, sometimes it's someone you know directly. And like I said before, the reasons for coming and looking for private money are not necessarily because you can't get it at the bank. There are many other reasons why people want to do their own private deals because they don't want to do things like, you know, have things reported on their credit bureau. Yeah. So let's talk about the, um, this barbell strategy because you kind of, you described to me because I, uh, I approached it, I mentioned it sort of at the beginning with the difference in the diversification, but you know, when I advise entrepreneurs, I mean, investors about getting started in this, it's, you know, and when I've done my workshops, and I had a, a interview a while back where a, um, an investor talked about his diversification strategy within his private alternative investments, right? So he has his traditional types of investments, and then he has his alternative. And 
we usually say it's going to be between you know, 10 to 20% of a portfolio would go into alternatives. And then within that alternative bucket, you can have a diversification strategy. So in his case, he does late stage private equity angel investors that's following into the IPO market. So there's this whole world of, of buying those kinds of companies stock before they go public. And then there's some traditional angels that are following into the actual VCs, like tagging along with the VCs. Mm -hmm. There's a late stage equity, then there's tagging along with VCs, and there's an early stage, and then there's this revolving sort of of part of it where you're doing bridge loans or these kind of loans, and that's sort of what I look at for an alternative. So, but I never really thought of it as this, um, your model that you described as 80% in this, you know, predictable return and the 20% is non-predictable because I had more asset classes. It's a lot of it. It's unpredictable. Right. So talk about your barbell approach or your, your sure. philosophy on that. So, so um, you know, I didn't invent the term barbell. It, you, <laughs> okay. know, you, you can go look it up in, in different investing books. And there are people that have been talking about this for a long time. But when people talk about diversification in your mind, you tend to think about money spread around over many different things. And in the traditional idea in an efficient market, the higher the rate of return, the greater the risk should be, right? And so people will say, you know, we're going to have some less risky things yielding a lower percentage and then some bigger risky things. And as long as we diversify, we'll be safe if we take a hit somewhere. So what, what I do personally with my own money is I say, look, if I can actually get a high rate of return without really taking on risk by doing my own wholesale local investing deals and where people are borrowing money at higher rates of return. And what that means is if I'm happy with sort of a mid-range yield, it means that most of my money can actually be in something that isn't exposed to any risk at all. So I can have 80% of my funds basically in CDs or high interest savings accounts and a small portion earning a higher rate of return. And this is going to give me an overall rate that I'm trying to hit in order for my long-term investing strategies. And you know, as the, the higher yield stuff grows, as soon as it gets out of line, of course, it takes some of that money and put it over into the low, low risk stuff. And so because I'm investing in small businesses, you know, really there would have to be some kind of catastrophic shakeup in the economy in, in general to cause all of them to go bad. But yeah. even if they did, 80% of the money is in the savings account, right? So, so overall, it makes me feel more comfortable. And, you know, personally, I have a little bit of um, a hesitancy about some publicly traded securities simply because I have no degree of control over a board of directors that meets on Wall Street, right? Whereas I personally know the business owners I'm handing money to in these small local deals. And the money down in the savings account is backed up by, you know, the federal government. So yeah. it, it's, it's a different philosophy, a different kind of approach. And it's, it's something that people can explore based on, you know, obviously what their own, their own goals are. Okay. And I feel the need at this point in time to offer up the disclaimer that neither David nor myself are licensed financial wealth managers or advisors. These are our own personal opinions of things that we have learned through our working in the marketplace with entrepreneurs and working with investors over the years. So with that. <laughs> Don't sue Karen. Yeah, or David, if you end up going out and doing a loan, and <laughs> <laughs> it's so. it's um it, it's it's really it really is a lot of fun, and you know, and it's it's exciting to do one of these things, 
And if you, if you go out and you find the right first deal that you're comfortable with, and, and you had said earlier, you know, who is this for? Do they have money, et cetera? This is for people, honestly, who have a couple grand they can lose and it's not going to kill them, right? Just like any investing, I, you know, a person needs to have a certain amount of financial security in general. Then I think you need to have some emergency funds in case things go badly for you. And then afterwards, you start to have conversations and thoughts about investing. Yeah. And, and that's what this is for. It's for after the emergency fund, after you know you're, you're paying your bills every month and you're saving and you're getting ahead and you paid off your credit card, this is the kind of thing that you might want to get involved in. And it's, it's really great. And, you know, this is a way that people can leverage the benefits of small business without actually being a small business owner. You know, small privately held corporations, I believe is an asset class. And through your work, you talk about investing in their, in their equity. And, and this is another way to invest in those companies. Oftentimes small businesses, you can't invest in their equity. There's an owner, they hold all the equity. They don't want to share that. Um, But it's a way for you to get access to the great returns that you can have in that space. And, and, you know, let me give you an example because this a guy I coached in this a couple of years ago when the book first came out. He was a pizzeria owner in Pennsylvania and he'd been very successful. He'd been running his pizzeria for a long time. And he was the kind of personality where he just wasn't ready to let anybody else run the place. So sure. he'd been doing it for 30 years and he was still working there 60 hours a week and he had paid off all of his debts and he was earning really good money and everyone around him was telling him, open another location but he knew that he was going to have a hard time with that because he couldn't be there. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs are like this, you know, a little bit perfectionist, very hands-on. He knew he wasn't going to be able to go there by, and then he read my book and he realized, Oh my God, I can use the information that, and the knowledge I have and the experience I have in the pizzeria business to identify whether it makes sense for me to invest in other people's pizzerias. Yes. And so this is what he started to do. So he just kind of drew a circle, a couple hours drive around where he lived, and he he made himself available. He said, you know, if you need new ovens, you need new kitchen equipment, you need a new vent hood, let, let me come in and take a look. And he could surmise very quickly by looking at their operation and looking at very little of their numbers, he could figure out how successful they were and if he thought it was a good risk. And so he was able to apply his own knowledge to underwrite these deals very quickly. And so yeah. it was a way for him to benefit from pizza in general while still not getting into mm-hmm. that second location, which he knew he'd have a problem running. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, the whole idea of compassionate capitalism and um, the original definition that I had when I started using that term during the recession a decade ago was, you know, the investment of time, knowledge, resources, and money into entrepreneur endeavors was to bring innovation to the market, create jobs and create wealth. But it's really, you know, it's become something where it's really a philosophy that says, I'm going to get out of the traditional. I want, in this case, local, I want my, the local businesses, the ones I like, the ones that I patron, the ones that, you know, I have a knowledge about, like in the example of your pizza guy, you know, that I want other people to succeed in the marketplace because that creates jobs, it makes my economy stronger it makes our tax base stronger it makes everything within my local community stronger when i decide that i'm going to be passionate feed the passion of the companies that are around me 
by investing in them, whether that is equity, because there is a growth and exit strategy, but when they're not, when there isn't a growth and exit strategy, because it is the kind of business that they may want their kids to take in, they don't really want to have to sell it to get to pay off investors. They want to, they can, you can become the bank, you know, when an investor is a bank and that's, and it, and it is a way for investors to participate in this without having their money, just like you described, tied up for years and years and years. And, you know, I think it's just a wonderful way. And, and ho hopefully a lot of people will listen to this, share this podcast with others, you know, because it is a, a little known way for people that whether they're a business owners themselves like the pizza guy or an employee that um is an executive in a company and has you know extra liquidity to be able to do this as a as a sidebar activity you know i think it's it's a win-win all around when you structure it properly you approach it with discipline and you know do your due diligence as you described which it would be i guess getting their credit report from them they can pull it themselves it could be timely it's within a couple of days and getting the it doesn't ding their credit report getting some financial statements some income statements things like that anything else that you look for i, I number one it's it's who is bringing it to me so how am i making this connection right and you know you know the expression birds of a feather flock together Right. So if, if I know somebody pretty well, I know what kind of reputation they have and they bring me their friend, you know, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to paint the picture a little bit with that brush. And, and I want to look at the financial statements of the business. And more importantly, I want them to explain how they're going to be further yeah. ahead. So, right. you know, one deal I did, it was for guys who refinish uh, concrete floors in industrial and commercial and, and residential garage spaces actually as well. And so they were buying this floor grinder because they were renting one from a tool rental place. And they were spending like sometimes six, $700 a month in daily rental fees. And they said, look, we can buy one um, for this amount of money. Would you help us out? And the payment worked out to a little over $300 a month. So right there, their cost for having that piece of gear was going to be cut in half. So my capital, my loan was actually going to help them be more profitable. And like I said, there's nothing that guarantees your stream of payments like a client who's making more money, right? Because they can afford to pay you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why would an entrepreneur choose this approach versus just getting another credit card to put it on? Well, the other credit card could actually be at a higher rate of interest, right? 24%. Yeah. And, and you know, when you talk about things like the pizzeria, you know who's, who's calling those guys all the time is the merchant card advance people. Yes. You know, and, and the effective rate on those advances is usurious. You know, technically it is, you know, it can be 60, 80% and people don't understand the math to understand exactly what it is they're paying back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we're just about out of time. Again, I want to encourage everybody to go to investlocalbook.com or davidcbarnett.com to get more mm -hmm. information and connect up with David and, and learn more about this particular process directly from him. And then please go to KarenRands.co to learn about how we work with entrepreneurs and investors and get access to my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. It comes with a portal that has a lot of documents and more information that you get as part of the process of learning this. Anything else you'd like to add as we close out here today, David? Uh, just uh, Invest Local is available from every Amazon store around the world. Oh, it's paperback. Yes. Kindle and the audio came out last year. So nice. 
whichever way you enjoy consuming a book, um, you'll find it on Amazon in Best Local. Very good, very good. I had to do the I had to do the the Audible myself, so get my book that way. So good. Well, thank you again for joining me again and sharing some in, uh, another batch of incredible insights for entrepreneurs and investors in the marketplace. And and I wish you the best onwards and upwards. Thanks, Karen.